Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. How's your week been? It's Wednesday. It's Thursday. We've had half of the week over. I missed Wednesday. I feel like it should be Wednesday. <laughs> I missed Wednesday. Yesterday out all day. But um, everybody doing good? The weather's nice and cold again. From 87 or so yesterday for a high to like 40 degrees lower today. Isn't that crazy? Oh, is it really supposed to freeze? Oh, no. There go the flowers and the blossoms. Maybe not with just 30. Who knows? I, I don't like it when it freezes in April because it kind of messes with the blossoms on the trees and everything. and just don't like that, but I can't control the weather, that's for sure, not in Kansas. Um, well, it's good to be with you this morning. We're going to continue the Gospel of John, chapter 15. This is part three of chapter 15 this morning. And we're going to pick up the story in verses 12 through 17. It's not a long passage, but there's a lot there that we want to look at. And thank you for the reminder. Before we begin, though, let's let's have our prayer. And I have, if you, does anybody need a card? Y'all have a card? Prayer card? Okay. Let us begin and pray together. I thought maybe I heard the door. No, not coming in. Let's pray. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise together with our Father, who is from everlasting and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you. You know, I'm thinking about the words of that prayer when it talks about uh, being transformed to live, and that's really the heart of what we're about to talk about this morning, because in this passage... John 15, in this very passage, Jesus is going to be talking specifically to his apostles about what he's giving to them of his life and his spirit so that they may live. He does it in the form of a commandment so that they may carry on the work of the church. Uh, So we, we hear it in the form of a commandment and we hear it that as Jesus is restating his relationship to his disciples, these 12 or 11 apostles that are with him on this night. And so we're going to read those verses together and then, then we'll discuss it. Starting with verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. 
For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, to love one another. Let's stop there. I think it's important for us to think through this passage, this conversation that Jesus is having with his 11 disciples. Sometimes we have a tendency to want to take everything that Jesus says to them as applicable to us in the 20 because we're followers, we're all disciples. If he said it to one disciple, it would flow to all disciples. But I think there's a sense in which these words he's saying to them right now were specifically for them. And we're going to talk about why that is. Now, some of it, of course, applies to us. But I think there's an aspect that I think that uh, isn't just applicable to everyone. And when I get to that, that may sound weird to you. They say, well, there's something Jesus said that wasn't applicable to everyone. But I'll, I'll explain it when I get to it. Um, but let's begin with this thought in mind. Jesus says, this is my commandment. Now, if somebody says, this is my commandment, this is my order for you, this is what I want you to do, that it sounds singular, doesn't it? It's just, it's just as if Jesus is saying, hey, I got one thing for you to do. You know, we think of the commandments. One of the reasons people are so put off by following Jesus or following Christianity is that it seems so full of commandments. You know, we're always tied back to the Ten Commandments. Seems like the Ten Commandments are reinterpreted into other commandments. And they just, people think of Christianity as such a list of rules. Do this, don't do that, don't do this, do that. But really, Jesus says, and we're used to hearing Jesus, we're hearing him re- recite the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. When he was challenged by those. Jewish leaders, you know, back in Matthew chapter 20, I think it is, 20 or 22, I forget now. And he he answers them, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then he tells them, and the second one is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, they didn't ask him what the second one was. He volunteered that, okay? He says, and let me tell you something. The second one is just like the first. So there's two commandments. Although Jesus kind of says there's the same. And now, tonight, he's, he's telling them in this passage, right here in this, this last night of his life, I got one thing for you to do. If you do this one thing, you're going to be my disciples. What is that one thing? Loving unconditionally. Loving everyone unconditionally. That's exactly right. Loving unconditional. We want to concentrate in on that word. Jesus uses the word love over and over in this chapter. Even in these few verses, he uses it several times. It's always agape. This is the agape, you remember, is the Greek word for unconditional love. It's the love of God that has now been shared with human beings. And we're going to talk about how God shares that with human beings. So he wants them to hear and, and, and again, I doubt that this is all soaking in that night, you know, because by the time we get to the end of 
this this three chapter discourse of Jesus, John 15, 16, and 17. That's all read in your Bibles. You know this long narration that John gives us of Jesus in that in that last night experience. By the time we get to the end, we will have heard Jesus say things like, look, I've got a lot more to tell you that you can't handle right now. But the realities are the Holy Spirit will bring back to you everything when you receive power from on high. He says things like that. But right now he's saying to them, love. This is my commandment. It's a singular commandment. So I ask the question, does Jesus have more than one commandment? I mean, it's that simple, really. The life of a Christian boils down to one thing. Do we love? Do we really love? And now we're going to ask the question, do we love like Jesus loved? Because that's how he qualifies his commandment. Did you catch that? Look at the verse. This is my commandment, that you love one another. It doesn't say period after that. As I have loved you. What's the example of the love? Jesus. His perfect love. Lay down his life for you. And then he even qualifies it, doesn't he? He qualifies, as I have loved you. Well, how did he love them? And how was he going to prove his love for them? By laying down his life. He goes on, he says, greater love, verse 13, greater love is no man than this, that you lay down your life, or he laid down his life for a friend. For his friends. I, I find that particular verse fascinating because we've all heard it. You know, it, it sounds like one of those beautiful platitudes, doesn't it? Lay down his life for a friend. But how many of us would really do it? If push comes to shove, how many of us think we could really do it? To lay down his life for a friend. It's a challenging thought. For, but, my, for my family, maybe yes. For another person, uh, it might be a little harder. <laughs> what about for a stranger? I think it's unknowing. Not knowing that person it makes it kind of like it's easy yeah. for your family. Yeah. But if you don't know that person, you kind it brings a question mark. Yeah. And that's just human nature. We're being human, that's for sure. Yeah, I see a hand. Yeah. I think about the military. Hmm. Absolutely. How could they do it? How could they go off to a foreign battlefield, put themselves in harm's way, and literally lay down their lives? Most of them young. Young people serving in armies, you know. It's an incredible sacrifice, you know. When you really think about it, it's an incredible sacrifice. Yes? Good question. How can we? In the first place, we don't, I mean, he's so much bigger than we are, and we just don't Mm. realize how he loves and how, you know, how we can. It's an awesome expectation, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So I think you raise a good point, Joan, and that is, can we? Your question was, how can we? And I think we have to ask the question this morning, can we do it? Did Jesus expect his disciples to do it? Did he expect just the 12 to do it, or the 11? I keep qualifying it because Judas is already gone now. Did he, or was that one of these things that I said in the beginning, it's just written for them and not for us? No. 
I'm going to explain that a little bit later. But I think is written for us too. I think, and I think here is the life of Christ when it is lived out in us. Uh, this is our goal. Are we willing to lay down our lives? Because when when this happens, um, it, it's overpowering. It, it's undeniable. It's unconquerable. This kind of love, and it changes the world. So let's think about. Let's just think about who all Jesus died for. Did he Did he just lay down his life for these eleven? No. No. Who did he lay down his life for? Everyone. So he laid down his life for Everyone. Roman emperors that tried to kill him, for Roman soldiers that tried to kill him, for Pharisees that hated him, for everyone. He laid down his life for everyone, even for Judas, even though Judas betrayed him. There's no one ever alive on planet Earth ever has been, ever will be, that Jesus didn't lay down his life for. Okay. Now, we know not everyone accepts that sacrifice. We have to embrace that sacrifice. But he did it. Now, as we think about that, I, I want to pull apart some of the words here. Uh, I think as Jesus is saying love, forgive me if I sit down a little bit, because I'm just tired today. <laughs> so I don't always like to sit down uh, when I teach. Um, this love, this commandment to love is really the summation of everything. And I want to read to you some words from St. Augustine. Here's one of the church fathers from the 4th century that I, I think has some really good things to say to us on this, on this thought of this being the only commandment. St. Augustine brings in some of the thoughts of the Apostle Paul uh, from his writings on love. You know that chapter in... 1 Corinthians chapter 13 about love. He has a lot to say about love. And uh, let's, let's hear what Augustine says. Is there not another that is still greater? That, let me just begin at the beginning. It's kind of a long passage. I was debating on where to begin. Okay, he quotes Jesus. This is my commandment, as if there were no other. What are we to think? Is then the commandment about that love which we love one another is that his only one? Is there not another that is still greater that we should love God? Okay, wouldn't that be a greater commandment to love God? Is there not still another one or is this Jesus' only commandment? That's why I asked that question. Now let me get back to Augustine. Or did God in truth give to us such a commandment about love alone that we have no need of searching for others? Good question. Okay. There are three things, at least, that the Apostle commands. And now he's talking about the Apostle Paul. That the Apostle Paul commands when he says, quote, But now abide faith, hope, and charity. And the word charity there in the Greek is actually love, uh, translated. Uh, but the greatest of these is charity, or love, as we're used to hearing it. That's a direct quote from 1 Corinthians 13. So the apostle said, but now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Augustine goes on to say, and although in love that is, well, he says in charity, that is meaning in love, the two commandments are contained, yet it is here declared to be the greatest, 
not the only one. Accordingly, what a host of commandments are given to us about faith. What a multitude of hope. Who is there that could collect them all together or suffice to number them? But let us ponder the words of this same apostle. When he says in the book of Romans, love is the fulfillment of the law. That's a direct quote from Romans chapter 13. And so where there is love, what can be lacking? And where it is not, what is there that can possibly be profitable? The devil believes, but does not love. No one loves who does not believe. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement. The devil has so much jealousy, he can't love. But he believes. He believes in God. He knows God's real. Yeah, okay. and, and he definitely doesn't love. You're right. But listen to this next statement from Augustine, what he just said to follow that. But no, but no one loves who does not believe. Augustine is equating the presence of love in our life, agape love, with belief. And, I, and he's going beyond maybe what we traditionally think of as disciples. Let me read on here and you'll see. One may indeed hope for pardon, who does not love, but he hopes in vain. But no one can despair who loves. Therefore, where there is love, there will necessarily be faith and hope. And where there is the love of our neighbor, there also will necessarily be the love of God. For one that does not love God, how does he love his neighbor as himself, seeing that he does not even love himself? Such a person is both impious and iniquitous, which means unholy and sinful. And he who loves iniquity clearly does not love but hates his own soul. Let us therefore hold fast to this precept of the Lord. Love one another. And then we will be doing all else that is commanded, for we have all else contained in this love. I think what Augustine is saying is he is realizing here that love is everything. Faith is great. Hope is great. We have all kinds of commandments about having faith. We have all kinds of commandments about hope. But the truth is, if we have love, we have it all. And he's saying that everyone who loves, who shows this kind of love, it's proof that they have God. It's proof that they are God's. You see, I, I, I think this speaks to us greatly that the presence of love, the Christ-like love, is the hallmark of how the human life is to be lived. We've been really good. We as Christians, after 21, 21 centuries now, or two 20 centuries, we've been really good at building a systematic theology and saying, this is what it means to be Christian. This is what it means. And there's a long list of things you got to believe in. When ultimately, in the beginning, the early church had no systematic theology. 
It conquered the world. It conquered the Roman Empire with nothing but love. Christ-filled, unconditional love. Yes? When you said the devil believes, what do you mean by that? What was you? I mean that he believes in God. The devil knows he was created by God. He knows he was once formerly a good angel. He believes in God. He would be different than maybe an unbeliever in our world today that is just ignorant and doesn't believe in God. And that person may be evil, but they're not evil because they hate God. The devil is evil because he hates God. He believes, but yet does not Now, is this all faith. because God created humans and the devil was jealous over how he loved the humans and... The devil thought he was better and... I, I don't know that we can answer that. I don't think we can see into the heart of Satan to know exactly what pushed him over the edge. But I think what we can know from Scripture is that he desired to be like God himself in an unhealthy way. He wanted to take God's place. He thought he could overthrow God and in essence led a rebellion against God. And he was thrown down and a third of all the angels with him, Scripture teaches us. So when we decide we can do things without God, are we really saying we can do things and we don't need God? Or I can be God in this situation, you see? Because the truth is we need God for everything. Uh, we have no strength. We have no hope. We have no life. We have nothing without God. God is the giver of all. He's the creator of all, the sustainer of all. And so in this thought about love, unconditional love, I want you to think back on how the church won the world. It won the world on martyrdom. We, we, we think of soldiers who go off and lay down their lives in this beautiful gift of self-sacrificial love. But the church was persecuted greatly for hundreds of years and Pockets of time in those first three centuries where it was it was a horrific thing to be a Christian. And you were, it says of the apostles themselves, all but John, our author of this gospel, all but him were killed martyrs' deaths. Some sawn in twos, believed that, some boiled in oil, some, I mean, horrible martyred deaths. That's what history teaches us. And martyrdom didn't quit. The martyrs of the, the early saints of the church are the martyrs of the church who were I mean, fed to lions. Uh, St. Ignatius, one of the greatest writers, he was a student of the Apostle John, the Bishop of Antioch, and he literally was fed to lions. And you know what his, he said? Glory to God <laughs> in the mouth of a lion. He said, glory to God. Now, I want to I pull up a modern-day example of something that I think is unbelievably powerful. You remember how a few years ago, this was in 2015, there were, in all the news, the, the terrorist, Muslim terrorist organization ISIS that's in all the news and has been, you know, they, how they took these, they filmed a video of these 21 Coptic Christians and cut their heads off on live video. They want, and, they, and they said, we're sending this out as a message to all Christians. Okay, It's a horrible thing. I did not watch the video. I refuse to watch it. I just cannot watch that kind of... But it's real. Okay, 
But here's the story most people don't know. And I, I didn't even know this till I'm doing my devotional uh, a week or two ago. One of my little devotional books that I'm reading, I have it, I read it every year. Didn't bring it with me in here, but it's just a, a line in there inserted by the, uh, it's written by a, a Catholic priest. And uh, there's lots of people that go to devote to this, but this one specific day was written by a Catholic priest in this devotional. And he said, in that martyrdom of those 21, what most people don't know is that 20 were Coptic Christians. One was Muslim. Did you know that? Mm-mm. Nobody talks about it in the news. Okay. Now, first of all, Coptic. Do we all understand what a Coptic Christian is? Mm-hmm. When you hear the word Coptic, it means Egyptian. Okay. So Coptic Christianity is the, is the name that has been given to the Christian faith that has flowed out of Egypt. Remember back in the earliest church time, Egypt was one of the great centers of learning, the school of thought in Alexandria. The, the bishop of Alexandria was one of the five main patriarchs of the church, along with the bishop of Rome, the bishop of Constantinople, the bishop of Antioch, the bishop of Jerusalem. Alexandria is in Egypt. It was a city that uh, Alexander the Great, it was founded for him in his empire. Okay? Does that mean they believed in Christianity? They were Christians, yes. So they were they were Egyptian Christians, not Jewish, not Roman, not Antioch. And that word Coptic comes means the Egyptian church. Okay. Now, through the centuries, they, the Coptic church is one of the churches that is today known by the term Oriental Orthodox. Not Eastern Orthodox, like we think of our friends over here at St. George's Church. They're Antiochian Orthodox. They're, so in the world of Orthodox Christians, if you boil all the world down to just Western and Eastern Christians, Roman Catholics and Protestants are in the West, Orthodox in the East. There's two forms of Orthodoxy, traditional Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodox, and Oriental. And what, that word Oriental is just kind of an old-fashioned word. It doesn't mean Chinese, okay? It, it, the, back in the old days... That was the Orient, okay? Iraq, India, as far as India, that was the Orient. You know, nobody had thought about China yet. <laughs> um, and so that Oriental Christians, they're defined that way because the Council of Chalcedon that, de- that defined Jesus Christ as both God and man in the 5th century, they didn't agree with that. They saw Jesus is having one nature. And it's a very fine semantic difference, okay? But they kind of lost communion with the rest of orthodoxy and Christianity at that point. So that's who these cop the Coptic church is a is a is an oriental orthodox. Okay, but very still Christians just like you and I have a little bit of difference on that one dogma, if you will, that one doctrine. But here are these 21, some of the most ancient Christian churches of all, of course, in, in Egypt. And there are 21 held by these ISIS terrorists to be beheaded. One was Muslim. He wasn't Christian at all. In fact, the writer of this devotional gives us his name, that his name was Matthew Ayariga, which sounds, I'm sure I'm saying it with a little Latin influence, but he's actually from Ghana, the African nation of Ghana. He was a young man from the African nation of Ghana, and he was Muslim. He could have said to those terrorists, no, don't kill me, I'm Muslim. 
But obviously he was with these. Most of these young, ter- young Coptic Christians were farmers and they were young and they're, they're, they live a very rural life. And he obviously was friends with them. And he obviously got rounded up with them. But in seeing them love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength, that they would say, glory to God, go ahead and cut my head off. I will not renounce my Lord. They could say as Christ did from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the ultimate sacrifice. Laying down their life, not only for their friends, but for their enemies. And this Matthew, this, this, this Muslim man said, when they came to him, you know what he said? It's been recorded that he said, my God is their God. And they cut his head off. Now that is laying down your life, not only for your friends, but for your enemies. And that's what Jesus did. So even though he says, no greater love has anyone that lay down his life from his friends, let's remember all of Jesus' words. And all of Jesus' words are, love as I have loved you. And Jesus loved us by laying down his life, not just for his friends, but for his enemies. Okay? We must never forget that. So unconditional love means that we must be willing to live that kind of self-sacrificial life for everyone. Not just our friends. Not just our family. Now, do we, just because we believe in Jesus, do we automatically have that kind of strength? I don't think so. I mean, I'm thankful that I've never been tested to that point, okay? I'm thankful that I live in freedom and that nobody, I don't have to worry about somebody knocking on my door or pulling me out of my workplace and saying, renounce Jesus or we'll cut your head off. I'm really thankful for that. Who's had a dream I was going to have my my head cut off? Well, let's just leave that in the realm of bad dreams, not as as prophecies, okay? (laughs) But I I want to share with you some more thoughts here on what, because Jesus moves from this idea of friendship and he starts to define what it means to be a friend of his. Okay, let's listen to what he says. He says, no longer do I call you servants. In verse 14, he says, you're my friends if you do what I command. Okay, so right there, there's a, there's a hitch to being a friend of Jesus. Okay, it's not just to believe, but it's to do. You're my friends if you do what I command you. Okay, there, obedience to Jesus is always part of true faith. Okay, and true relationship with, with him. Now he goes on to say, no longer do I call you servants in verse 15. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. The word for master there in the Greek is kyrios. Kyrios. I didn't write that one up there. Kyrios means uh, Lord. Lord master. Okay. For it says the servant does not know what his master is doing. So clearly, he says, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Let's stop and think about this for a minute. I I put uh, on the first question on the board, does Jesus have more than one commandment? The Greek word here for commandment, I didn't go over this and I should have. Entelomai. Entelomai. It's it's hard to pronounce. But there, I want you to have it because the, the purpose of that word is that it's not just it's not just a commandment like hey go do what I say, it's it's a commandment knowing 
it's given with a purpose. The, the, the Greek says it's given with a purpose, and that purpose is the fulfillment of all things. With the fulfillment of the whole vision in mind, I'm giving you this commandment. It's not just do it to do it to be obedient. It's do it because it's the fulfillment of everything. That, that's the purpose of this word. Okay, And then we see that, I'm going to get to the chosen here in just a minute, um, but he says to him, he says to them, I'm going to call you friends, not servants. A servant is one who has a master. Okay, that word for servant, I, there's more words that I didn't write down here. I should have. Um, doulos, D-O-U-O-U-S, D-O-U-L, sorry, D-O-U-L-O-U-S is the word for servant. or sl- It literally means a slave. A slave, every slave has a master, right? Okay? Every slave has a master. And as we're, the scriptures over and over say that we're slaves to God. We're, you know, we're bond servants, if you will. The apostle uses that term a lot. Um, and, and what Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you my friendship. I'm going to make you friends, not just servants. I think we're forever servants of God. But what's the difference between what, here's what we need to hear is what's the difference between what Jesus is saying to those 11? You, you are my servants because you've been doing what I tell you to do. You've been following me. You've been obeying me. You call me Lord. Okay. But now I'm going to call you friend. And he's, what's the difference? What are, their relationship is changing here. They're going from just being Jesus' servant to some very special relationship. Now, this is what I meant when I said in the beginning, is this forever? Are these words promised to everyone or just a select few? I really don't believe that this necessarily translates to everyone. And I'm going to tell you why. We're all friends of Jesus. I know we have a beautiful song we sing, I am a friend of God. I mean, yes, there's a sense in which we all are. But I want you to hear this. Listen to what Jesus is saying. But I have called you for, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. I cannot stand here today and tell you that all that Jesus ever heard from his Father He's made known to me, Brad Riley, one of your pastors, ordained servant of the Lord, struggling to be Jesus' friend. That's my goal. I can't tell you that he's made known all of that. that. What an amazing privilege. Everything Jesus heard from God the Father, he made known to these 11. These 11 are pretty special. They're the apostles, which means the one whom Jesus sends. There's a... That's a huge thing. And, and you know, they don't remember it all at that point, but he says to them later, when the Holy Spirit comes, you're gonna re- he's going to bring back to you everything I've ever taught you. In the end of this book of John, we're going to hear that it says, Jesus taught them way more than we could record here. This is just a small fraction of all the things Jesus taught. But it's enough that we might believe. So who are these 11, 11 men? These great apostles that we know become 12. Because one of the first things that they do, of course, after Jesus is resurrected and ascended back to heaven and they all get together, we read in Acts chapter 1, one of the first things they do is what? They elect somebody to take Judas's place. They elect a guy named Matthias. Then we never hear from Matthias again. 
But what an honor. He was elected. Okay. Now, why did they elect him? Peter quotes a, an Old Testament psalm. He says, let his bishopric another take, or let his place, his place of overseeing, let another take. And so clearly those 11 believed that they had a very special role from God and that they needed to have that role fulfilled. Yes? Now, do you consider Paul an apostle? Yes. I think he becomes the 13th. He becomes that special baker's dozen, if you will. He, he's, so when we talk about the 12 apostles, it's really almost a misnomer because there's really 13 because Paul becomes an apostle of Christ. And he says in his own words, as one chosen out of time, out of, uh, 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 but sent by God, the apostle Paul realizes how special his assignment is. I mean, he is literally saved in this blinding experience on the road to Damascus and, and uh, then equipped and, and filled with the Holy Spirit in miraculous ways and becomes perhaps one of the most important because he's one, he, he wrote two, two-thirds of the New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul. So, so here I think, I think there's something for us to learn in this election of Matthias and the addition of the Apostle Paul. What do you think was God's plan for the church of Jesus Christ on earth as these 12 and 13 men began to die off and get killed for their faith? Like I say, every one of them but John died. I mean, every one of them John died a martyr's death before the, within the first 30 years of Christianity or so. Within the first 30 or 40 years of the Christian church on earth, that's after Jesus' 33 AD death, Within the next 30 or 40 years, every one of them is dead, except John. Was their mission to save souls? Since it's, sure. It's actually a spiritual war. Sure. I mean, down here on earth, we're, yeah. st- we're stupid if you really want to know it. Because <laughs> they don't know their head from their arms or legs, but it's actually a spiritual war between Jesus and the devil. So well, it's it's a, trying to save as many souls sure. as they can. In the spiritual war that between Jesus and the devil, we must remember Jesus already won. He right. won it when he conquered the grave. Mm-hmm. Okay, But that spiritual battle we enter into because the devil doesn't leave us alone. Right. And so there is this battle to save souls. And so what, I'm, and I, and what I want you to do is I want you to... So the, you see the importance of these apostles? God, Jesus shared with them everything he'd ever heard from the Father. Now, at the time that he's sharing all this with the apostles, he said that the war's already won. Was the war already won at that time, or was it building up? Oh, the war was won the day Jesus was raised from the dead. Okay. Okay? The, the great war of, with Satan was conquered. But the battle was going to play out, and it's still playing out until Jesus, until Jesus comes again. The battle for every individual soul is still playing out. We can know that we have final victory. That's what the song Victory in Jesus means. We have victory in Jesus. I may get killed, I may get martyred like those Coptic Christians, but I still have victory. Because they can take my body, but they can't take my soul. Satan can take my body, but he can't take my soul. Now, here's what I want you to hear. How special, I want to come back to this. I'm going to keep coming back to this because this is so important for us to understand the church today. What was God's expectation for those 12 13 apostles. And what were they going to do with all that wisdom when they 
died. Well, they're seeds. Is for the wisdom of he, Jesus. He planted seeds to go out through the whole world because he couldn't go out through the whole world because his time was limited. So he spread the word through these 12, 13 people and made them seeds to go uh, create the Holy Catholic Church. Okay. And those seeds, that when you use the, would use the word Holy Catholic Church, okay, and you understand by that what? That it's, well... The, the word Catholic? Yeah, not meaning Roman Catholic. But right. The, the whole, very good, the very good. Meaning, meaning the one universal church of Jesus Christ, yes. And, and when you say seeds, I, I like where you're going with it. But here's what, I want, here's what I want to see. The wisdom of Jesus, the wisdom of God, all that he gave to the apostles, where is it now? Where did those seeds go? The faith went everywhere. But I, like I said, I don't have that wisdom. I have a portion of it, a very small portion. They say we only use a certain part of our brain when yeah. actually it's expandable well, did, more. This, this, is, this, is, this is the mind of God. This is the mind of God. Jesus said all the fathers did, ever did given to me. Did go to the Bible? In the Bible? But we didn't have the Bible for another 300 years. No, we didn't have the New Testament for another 300 years. Where is it going? I mean, these guys were dead within 30 years. Where did it go? Where did that wisdom go? What was God's plan for the transformation of that wisdom so that it would live on forever? The Word of God through the Holy Spirit. But the Word of God wasn't written like we just said. The Word of God, we think of the Word of God as the Bible. It was the, like the Jewish had a, had a tradition of, of the elders... For the disciples to to continue teaching their children and their children yeah. and their children, yeah. and so on, and telling them stories. Right. And it was a Bible story of yeah. Jesus. Right. So that's more or less, I think, that's where it went. Okay. Less. Okay. For, for the first three hundred years, anyway. Okay. So here's where here's where I'm leading. I'm leading you, obviously. I I have an answer <laughs> that I want you to know, but I'm just really leading you. You know, the, like in a court of law, the the judge would say, "You're leading the witness. Don't do that." Okay, I'm trying to get you to see an answer. Okay. Peter had to, they had to elect Matthias. They needed the Apostle Paul to show that there was, he was a special ministry to the Gentile world and, and the Jewish world. I mean, he, he transcended both worlds. Um, they had to because this power, this, this mind of God, that's what I'm calling it, the mind of God, which is in the mind of Jesus, because Jesus is God, is given to those 12, and it's more than they could ever write down. It's more than they could ever write down. They, they, they could never write it all down. So that's why they began teaching it. They, these are seeds they're planting. They begin teaching it. But as if we read the New Testament carefully, what we see is that everywhere they went, they set up elders in the churches, and in those elders, the, the New Testament used the word presbyters, okay, they ordained by the laying on of hands others to take their place. Okay? We see that Paul specifically ordains Titus and Timothy. And these are to function in the same role that they had. Why did they lay hands on them? Why did they ordain them? Because I believe that the laying on of hands is significant for the transference of something. In the Old Testament, they laid hands on people. 
God anointed the head of all the kings through the laying on of hands and the anointing of oil of the prophet Samuel as the king, first king, you know, and then that became the tradition after that. The point was, what, what was it that was happening when they uh, transferred, if you will, the call of their apostolic office to another that would live on after them? You see, it can't be that the, that the mind of God that was given to these 12, 11 men and then given separately to the Apostle Paul through his vision of Christ and his experiences. It cannot be that that died with them. They had power, they had wisdom, and they had authority. All of that had to transfer, okay? And it had to transfer well. And it did. Did they not also transfer the Holy Spirit? Sure, the God's gift of the Holy Spirit's part of it, yes. And the Holy Spirit teaching those new recruits about yeah. God. Yeah. And so what I want you to hear is that this is what the church has called through the ages the, the belief in apostolic succession. Apostolic succession. So when we say in creeds that we believe the church, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. What are we confessing? We're confessing that not only do we believe the church is universal, that there can only and ever be one real church. Also, that it must date back to the apostles. Okay? Why is this important? You say, Brad, why are you bringing this up? We have faith. We believe. Well, hey, even the devil believes. Mm -hmm. But I want to be more than just a believer. I want to make sure I'm living in the life and mind of Christ. Because Paul calls us to, in his writings, you can read in the Philippian, he says, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Okay, we want to do more than believe. We want to live. We want to get in touch with that mind, that wisdom, that deposit of wisdom. If, write this word on the board. It's a deposit of wisdom. And where did God deposit it? He didn't deposit it in all the 3,000 people that were believers. He deposited it in the apostles. And who were they? They were the leaders of the church. And what is the church? Jesus. Jesus. It is the body of Christ, of which he is the head. And if we read Paul's writings carefully, he says that the church is the, he's talking to the church in Ephesus, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and their teachings, of which Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Okay? So I guess what I'm saying, I'm going, I'm paying a little time on this. I'm putting some time into this because I want you to hear the church of Jesus Christ is vitally important. And I'm struggling with this a lot because this is the number one problem we have in our day today. Many people want to believe in Jesus, but they could care less about the church. Many people want to say, oh, I believe, but I don't really need the church. 85% of all people between the ages of 19 and 29 don't belong to any church, period. 85%. That means if we walk out into the streets and find young people, young adults, barely, barely two out of ten would belong to any church anywhere. But we have a crisis on our hands. And the crisis of the modern world is that it has lost the doctrine and understanding of the necessity of the church and the power of the church and the wisdom of the church. We need a new doctrine. We need to rediscover the ancient doctrine of the church.
And let me tell you where the, why this is important. As Protestant Christians, and I hate that word Protestant, okay, I don't like the word Protestant, I never have, because I don't like labels. I don't like the word Roman Catholic either, okay. Um, we should all just be Christian. I'm not a Protestant because I'm not protesting anything, okay. In the 15th, 16th century, they had a big reason they wanted to protest, so they did. But you know what? I think we've dealt with that. Let's move on with it. I'm not protesting anything. I'm a Christian, okay. Now, the realities are with those labels, we have fractured the body of Christ. The church has been fractured so deeply. God is God, and, and he is bigger than all of our human petty arguments, okay? And I don't think in my lifetime, it's uh, before Jesus returns, I just don't expect it to all go back to one denomination, if you want to use that phrase, okay? But God is big enough to save us all, okay? But in, in, in that wisdom, though, the denominations that have flowed from the Protestant Reformation. Now, the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox, and then you know, you know now there's two streams of Orthodoxy, the Orientals and the regular Orthodox. All of those three, they see themselves as part of the historic church that's been passed down through the ages, right? From apostles to apostles. And their bishops of the churches are the successors to the apostles. And then, and then, and then, and over and on. And all in the pro once you enter the Protestant Reformation, most of the Protestant denominations that flowed out of the Protestant Reformation understood that principle, and they continued with that thought that there was this idea of succession. Okay, one of the challenges that we have today is that there's been so much fracturing in Christianity, in non-denominational things and things jumping up that that we've lost the identity of who is the church and where's the authority of the church? Where's the wisdom of the church? Why do we need the church? Like I say, when 85% of all young adults don't need the church, they say they think they don't need the church, we got a problem on our hands. And I think it's because we've lost identity of the importance of the church as the body of Christ and the wisdom that God gave to those apostles and the wisdom that they then in turn taught to Timothy and Titus and all those that they passed that faith on to and that, that they kept, as you said earlier, planted seeds. It's an amazing thing. We need to rediscover. So my heart is broken for young adults because they don't think they need the church. A lot of people in your generation and in the older generations, boy, they, they wouldn't think of leaving the church, okay? And, and I think we need to rediscover why is, the, why is the church important? Can we have life in Christ outside the church? Well, supernaturally, yes, God is able to do anything. But normatively, the church is where God expects his people to gather. It's the, it's the vessel that carries us believers through the trials and the tribulations of this world and keeps us afloat, kind of like you know Noah's Ark did, if you will. Um, so I think John is going to a lot here when he talks about, you know, and, and then you see in verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And we look at that, that Greek word there that, that talks about to choose. You know, uh, you know and it, 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 again, I wrote the pronunciation here, eklegomahi, eklegomahi. What does it mean to choose? It means they were chosen with a purpose, with the end purpose in mind. It wasn't just a willy-nilly choice. 
They were chosen with the end purpose in mind. He knew that they were to be appointed as apostles, and he was sharing everything the Father ever taught him. He was sharing with them. Wow, what a huge, huge gift. What a huge responsibility. And you know, one of the things the Jewish people of that day, what they did was they chose the rabbis that they wanted to follow. You know, they were all Jews. They all believed, and they worshiped at the temple, and they had the synagogue worship. And the, in the, But the reality was, to really become a disciple, they often chose a rabbi that they wanted to follow. And then a lot of people thought of Jesus as a rabbi. He's got all these followers going around him. And so he wanted to tell these Jewish men right here that he's called to be his apostles. They hear this word. He's, you didn't choose me. Right away, they're thinking, well, that's, that's true. We didn't just choose you. He chose them for a purpose. They were, they were chosen by the mind of God for a purpose. And then he sums it all up with remember in that last verse, in just last part of verse 16. So remember this. You were chosen. I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. In other words, your fruit should last. The fruit of the apostles didn't just die in the first century. It's still the fruit of faith being passed on. And then he says, so whatever you ask in, fa- in the Father's name, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he, he may give it to you. Now that brings back verse 7. Last week when we talked about verse 7, what did it mean to really ask in his name? To abide. Remember when Jesus began this chapter? He began by talking about the vine. That's the great metaphor here, the vine. Who is the vine? Jesus. Jesus. And who are the branches? Us. Everyone who comes to faith and believe in life in him. Okay? And what did we just say? What did we just say Jesus is equal to? What is we what did we just say the, the other big metaphor the Apostle Paul teaches that Jesus is? Church. The body of Christ. That's right. The body we are the church is the body of Christ, Jesus, of which Jesus is the head, is the way Paul teaches it. So we can't divorce Jesus from the church, okay? We go away. It is his body, okay? He don't walk away from us. We walk away from him. That's right. And in reality, the church then is an extension of the vine. So where do we find life in Christ in its fullest? In the tree branches that are right. In the church. <laughs> because in, that's his living, it's his living life in this world. That's a mystical thought. It really is a mystical thought. The church is not a building. The church is just not a documented organization that has people with their name on a membership role. But the church is the mystical body of Christ. It is the living expression of the vine of Jesus Christ in our world. And we need to stay connected to it. Because in that connection is life. And so he ends verse 17 with the same way he began, verse 12. This is my command, that you love one another. And we know that love is the unconditional love of God, as we've learned in that word agape. And we know that God wants for his church in every age to live this life of Christ out in that type of unconditional love, a love so great that it gives its life for its friends. And so we're back to where we began. What an incredible challenge it is. See, I I think this is the whole gospel. The whole gospel isn't that just 
just believe in Jesus so you don't go to hell. That's not the whole gospel. The whole gospel is that Christ had a plan and his plan included the church and that the church is where we find that life in its fullest expression. Okay? And that the life of his church, the life of his branches in that church, the life of the fruit that's on the vine is a life of love. Unconditional love. Now, let me read to you just a closing thought here from another one of these early church fathers. He's one that almost nobody ever hears from. His name was John Cassian, and I believe he lived in the, uh, in the 5th century, 6th century. And he says this about this idea of love. He says, The one who fears is not yet perfect in love. And again, though it is a grand thing to serve God, and it is said, Serve the Lord in fear, And it is a great thing for you to be called my servant. And blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he calls, shall find work, he find working. Those are all quotes from scripture. He says, yet it is said to the apostles, quote, I no longer call you servants, for the servant does not know what his Lord does. But I call you friends for everything. And there's a a thought again. Everything I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. And once more. You are my friends, quote, if you do what I command you, unquote. You see then, this is John Cassian speaking again, you see then that there are different stages of perfection that we are called by the Lord from high things to still higher things in such a way that he who has become blessed and perfect in the fear of God, going on as it is written from strength to strength, and that's a direct quote from Psalm 83, from strength to strength, and from one perfection to another, that is mounting with an eager soul from one fear to hope. That person is summoned in the end to that still more blessed stage, which is love. And whoever has been a faithful and wise servant will pass to the companionship of friendship and to the adoption as sons. All of that, I believe what John Cassian is saying to us is that As I began when I told you today, am I there? No, I wish I was. Am I perfect in my love of God? Am I perfect in my love for you? No, I'm not. I want to be, though. So I'm still going on from one stage to another. God is calling us. Apostle Paul calls it the upward call. Okay, It's not the upward call with a plateau. Once we make a decision, we're there. It's always going on. From glory, as Paul says, from glory into glory into glory. So the life we live in Christ, the life we live in Christ is ever increasing, ever growing towards Christ-likeness, towards God. We've got to have that upward call. We've got to be growing in friendship, in love, (coughs) unconditional love. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. It's 12 noon. Thoughts, questions, comments, complaints? Anyone? You, you, I can see your wheels turning. Good thoughts here. Really good thoughts. The psalm that you mentioned. Yes. Was in the Valley of Baca. Oh wow. Where they yeah. went from strength to strength. Yeah. They went from well to well to well on the way to Jerusalem to find water in order to go to worship. And you think of the dryness and what they had to look for in that. Beautiful, and in many ways that's where we are. And we need to keep going from strength to strength and from well to well 
And those wells are Jesus Christ. He is the spring of living water. Let's remember that. And his Holy Spirit. Beautiful. Thanks for throwing that in. Well, let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these that have come today to study your word. As we prayed in the beginning, just open our hearts to hear your words that we might learn to live in in the love and the power of your commandments. That we would truly conquer all carnal desires by the power of your spirit and learn to live out this beautiful life of unconditional love that you call us to. Friends of God, help us, Father, now with these words. Strengthen us until we meet again. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, who lives with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.